Welcome to the Rolling Hills Community Church Sermon Podcast. This summer, we're walking through the book of Romans, taking a master class from the rich and powerful book of the New Testament. Romans is one of the greatest books of the Bible. It is the essence of the gospel and provides the rich doctrine of our faith. Romans was written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Rome, and God has used it to change the hearts of men and ultimately the world. In Romans, we see the impact of our sin, which reveals our deep need for God, and then the importance of living out our faith in Jesus today. Whether a lifelong student of the Bible to a first-time believer, this is a masterclass for everyone. Let's listen in. Well, for the past week, I was with 280 teenagers at our Rolling Hills Beach Week, and when I would get up to speak, I would have to walk through the hordes of teenagers that were all at the front of the stage. You all didn't do that this morning. You didn't run forward. Uh, You didn't run forward when you heard the music. All joking aside, though, I come to you to report something that I am so passionate about. The church is in very good hands in the future. Okay, that was a very weak applause, so I'm going to try that again. Let me just pretend that I didn't come up on stage, okay? Okay, the bumper just played. I just spent 280 weeks, 280 weeks, 280 (laughs) Freudian slip, 280 uh, teenagers over the last week, and I want to let you know the church is in very good hands. That's right. That's what... I like to hear. Prior to that, we had our VBS here at our church, and I want to remind you the church is in very good hands. And I think that us old folks in the room, we have something that we can learn from these 8-year-olds and these 18-year-olds and these 15-year-olds and Asher who was baptized today. We have something to learn from this next generation because this next generation is passionate about Jesus. And I don't know what you're reading about them, but it's... It's pretty incredible to see what God is doing in our kids and in our teenagers. And I'm just so thrilled that we all get to be a part of that together. And whether you went or not, or whether you have a child or not that's a part of our next generation ministry, God is working in a very powerful way. And so I just want to say thank you to every volunteer, to every core team member that holds babies, that shows up on Wednesday night and works with people that have on way too much Axe body spray. Uh, It matters, doesn't it? It matters. And if you wonder what we care about here at Rolling Hills, we always care about what's coming behind us because we do believe that our best days are still ahead and God's doing something so special in this next generation and we get to be a part of it. So we're leaders today and we're leaders in what God is doing and I hope and pray that you'll feel excited and passionate about what it is that the Lord's doing in your life and that that will translate this morning into uh, walking away different because of this encounter with him. Now, it's been my experience that some of us in the room, we kind of fall into a couple different categories. And there's category one, which is what I call the ABC123 people. And that's those of you that you like everything kind of really systematized. Your life operates by a spreadsheet. You don't like a lot of gray area, you know, you kind of tend to think things fall in black or white categories, and you want them to just kind of stay in those categories. And so that's the ABC one, two, three people. And then there's the rest of y'all that I like to call spaghetti. And you're just kind of, your brain just kind of goes in a million different places, and you're okay with gray area. You're okay with things that aren't resolved. You know, you can kind of hang out in the middle a little bit and be confident. You can think about lots of things at various times. 
And some of your lives are reflective of that. You're much more content when things don't have to be as systematized, uh, and you can see things from different angles. You can kind of hang on for the ride in the middle. Now, for those of you that kind of operate your life in that gray area, you're going to be very happy at the end of today's message. Now, for those of you that are my ABC 123 people, I'm going to go ahead and start praying for you right now. That God would soften your heart to what it is that we're talking about today because we're continuing in this series called Masterclass where we're looking at the book of Romans. And Romans chapter 9 is particularly our text for today. And Romans chapter 9 is a phenomenally deep chapter in the Bible, but it's a chapter of the Bible that has been debated for years. It's one of these chapters of the Bible that introduces us to some themes that we in no way, shape, or form could ever fully understand with a lifetime of study. Meaning that in the 30 minutes that I have up here with you this morning, I'm in no way, shape, or form going to be able to unpack everything that you need to know about these deep theological truths. However, out of the gate, I firmly believe that just because something is difficult or just because something is maybe a little bit hard for us to understand or just because something maybe doesn't always have a nice package that it goes in and gets tied up with a really pretty ribbon doesn't mean that it's bad. On the contrary, I believe it's in those moments that we tend to grow the most. And my hope and my prayer is that that would happen this morning in our life. Now, if you've been walking with Jesus for any amount of time, it's, it's undoubtedly that you've probably asked yourself some of these questions that are unfolding in Romans chapter 9. Maybe you've asked yourself this question, if God is so loving, why does everybody not come to faith in Jesus Christ? Maybe you've asked yourself the question before, if God is so good, why do certain people hear the gospel one time and other people hear the gospel a hundred times? Or do I choose to be in a relationship with God or does God choose to be in a relationship with me? See, these questions are at the heart of Romans chapter 9. And I believe that if you'll open up your heart to the word of God, he's going to bring wisdom to you in those areas. He's going to bring some discernment into our life. He's going to help us to walk away today changed because of this encounter with him. So do me a favor. Let's join together in prayer and ask God to meet us here and ask God to do what only he can do in our midst today. So Lord, thank you for this beautiful morning of life. Thank you, God, for this room full of people that has assembled together to worship, to reflect upon your goodness, to hear the word of God. And I pray, God, that you would meet us, that you would strengthen us, that you would embolden us, that you would give us wisdom as we share, wisdom as we worship, wisdom as we just reflect upon who you are. God, you are here in this place, and we know that you are working in our lives. And so I pray that we would be responsive to that and that you would help us to listen to you, help us to grow in our walk with you. And I pray for those in the room that may not have that relationship with you, that today would be the day that they meet you and that they understand how good you are and how faithful you are. And it's in the powerful name of Jesus Christ that we pray and all God's people said, amen. Now there's a concept about God and how God works that is pretty difficult for us to wrap our finite minds around. Because in our best ability, uh, before we go any further, we've kind of got to just start at the base level. There's this concept about God that's called God's sovereignty that's really, really difficult for us to understand. Sovereignty is a really fancy way for us to say that God is in control, that God is in charge, that there's nothing that happens apart from God's knowledge, that there's nothing that God doesn't already know, that God is in our midst, that God knows every day of your life before a single one of them was ever, ever lived out, and there's nothing that happens apart from the will of God. So that's the sovereignty of God. And if you 
start thinking about that, it kind of starts to make your mind flex a little bit. And you think, wow, that's a lot for me to grasp right now. That's a lot for me to handle, to know that my life is not an accident, to know that I'm not here in this place by accident. And there's so many verses of Scripture that point to the sovereignty of God. Acts 4.24, and this is the disciples. When they heard this, they raised their voices together. In prayer to God, sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. See, these verses are in reference to the early disciples. They were in uh, praising God when Peter and John were boldly standing before the Sanhedrin, and they were saying nothing is going to stop us from praising God. If we die, we don't care. Whatever you're going to try to do, we're not going to stop proclaiming God. And so instead of being punished, they were released, and the disciples proclaim, Lord, you are sovereign. You are good. You worked something that could only have been described by you. And then there's Proverbs 16:33. The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. What does that mean? It means that you and I think that we're in control of our choices, but we're really not. It means that everything that happens that God is working in, that God is moving, that God already knows every day of our life. Doesn't it blow your mind a little bit to know that God knew you were going to be here today? God knew that your presence in this place was going to be a reality. So to be sovereign means that God is king over it all. That means that nothing happens apart from his knowledge, and that means that nothing happens randomly. Nothing happens without and for a reason and for a purpose. Now, do I know all of the reasons that God works? Do I know all of the reasons and all of the how and all of the why that God does all that he does? Absolutely not. But my response this morning, prayerfully through the word of God, is to trust him in that, to trust his sovereignty even if it doesn't make sense, even if I don't know what's happening and even if I don't know why it's happening. If you have kids, maybe this has happened to you before. Again, happy Father's Day to all of you guys. And if you have kids, I'm sure that you can relate to this because this has happened to us before at our house. We have somewhere that we need to be, and we have a plan for how to get everybody out of that house to where they need to be. Now, how often does that plan work the way that we want it to? Rarely never, right? And so let's just say, for example, you're taking your family to a fun day at the water park. And you're going to leave at 8 a.m. because it's an hour drive, and you, the water park opens at 9.30, and so you want to be there early, and so you know that it's really helpful for everyone to be ready by 7.45 to go, shoes tied, floaties, everybody needs to go to the bathroom. You know, if they're all ready by 7.45, maybe we can actually get out of here by 8, and we've got some flex time to be able to, come, to arrive at 9.30. So it's time to leave, uh, and nobody has their shoes tied. Um, and they haven't found their loveys and their floaties yet. And so they start dawdling around, and they've forgotten all the things that you ask them to do. And you finally get on the road about 20 minutes late, and nobody went to the bathroom, even though you told them to go to the bathroom. And so then 30 minutes into the drive, everybody has to go to the bathroom, and you stop. And at the exit that you stop at, there's a McDonald's, which means now everybody wants sausage biscuits. Even though they've already eaten... And so then you drive through McDonald's, and then you get stuck in traffic a little bit, and then you pull into the water park about 9.45, 15 minutes after it's open. Nobody has any sunscreen on, so that's a 30-minute process. And now nobody's actually sliding until 10 a.m. A solid 30 minutes have already, have already transpired and are just gone. And now you're late, but who are your kids mad at? You. They're mad at you. For that plan not working out. And you think to yourself, don't make me come back there. Because 
I had a plan. And the person that messed up the plan was not me. The person that messed up the plan was the dawdler, the person who forgot what they were doing, the person who had more suggestions, the person who wasn't on time. You're actually the reason that we didn't make it out on time. And even though you're frustrated, I had a plan and you didn't understand the plan. And you're mad that the plan didn't work out for you. Sometimes I think when it comes to the sovereignty of God, we're kind of like kids with that. We ask a lot of questions. We have a lot of expectations. We have a lot of things that we want to do. And when God doesn't do exactly what we wanted him to do, and when God doesn't work exactly like we wanted him to work, we throw up our hands and say, can God really be trusted? Whereas God's saying in that moment, I actually have the best plan for you if you will start every day by saying, God, I'm a humble, available servant. What is the plan that you have for me? And help me to see that. Sometimes when it comes to the sovereignty of God, we ask a lot of questions. We pick apart a lot of arguments. The reality is, though, God is in charge, and he has a plan. And the more I can grow to trust that plan, the more that I'm going to see what he's doing. So this is what I seek to understand above all. And you see this here on the screen. Maybe you want to write this down. There will always be things about the way God works that I'll never be able to grasp. There are always things about the way God works that I'll never be able to grasp. And for some of you type A, A, B, C, one, two, three people, that was just a little bit of a dagger to your heart because you like to know everything. You like to have all the information. You like to know everything. You like to be able to put it all together. But there's always going to be some ways about God's working that I'm never going to be able to grasp. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9 tells us that. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So allow that concept of God's sovereignty to be the umbrella by which you view this text today. In any moment that you're not fully grasping what's happening because you're never going to fully be able to in your human mind or intellect, remember that God is sovereign and that God is over everything. So turn with me to Romans chapter 9. You're going to see this here on the screen as well. And I'm going to start in Romans chapter 9, verse 1, and read down through verse 5. If you have a mobile device, follow along. If you want a copy of God's Word or you don't have a copy of God's Word, God's Word back at that table, there's some free Bibles. You can take one of those home with you today. But listen to what he says in verse 1. This is Paul speaking. He's writing this to the church in Rome. I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption to sonship. Theirs the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised amen. Now, Paul is a Jew, but he's had this dramatic encounter with Jesus Christ and is walking with Jesus Christ. And what he's doing is he's reflecting upon his past, and he's reflecting upon all of his Jewish brothers and sisters. He's saying, I was a Pharisee. I was a religious leader. I was a Jewish man who met Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ radically changed my life. And what he is seeing is he's seeing all of his fellow Jews that have not embraced Jesus. And instead of embracing Jesus, they have rejected Jesus. Instead of worshiping Jesus, they nailed him to the cross. And he's asking himself, how did that happen? How did God let that happen? How could God let that happen? And Paul is saying that he's anguished by that. He's so disgruntled by that. Why? He said, because the Jewish people had every reason to see what God was doing. Lest we forget, Jesus was Jewish. 
God gave the Old Testament law, the Old Testament covenant law, to the Israelites. He performed miracles among them. Remember that Ten Commandments scene where the waters spread open and so that they could walk through on dry land? He delivered them from slavery. He met them in the temple. And it was through Jewish prophets like the prophet Isaiah that the Messiah was proclaimed, that we were told that Jesus is going to come. And it's frustrating to Paul because he's saying, why did my own people not get this? Why did they not see this? Hold that thought. Keep going back to verse 6 down through 13. It is not, though, as though God's word has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, nor because are they his descendants, all of Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not by the children of physical descent who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this was how the promise was stated, at the appointed time I will return and Sarah will have a son. Not only that, but Rebekah's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. See, even in the Old Testament, it would appear that there were Jews who truly understood in their heart, the miracles and the law and the deliverance that Moses had provided, the faith of Abraham. Paul is saying there were Jewish people who understood that, but there was this large population of Jews that did not get that. They didn't understand the heart behind Abraham's faith. They didn't understand the heart behind true worship. They didn't understand that God was meeting them in the temple. They were just kind of living their life for all of the rules. And Paul is saying there's a distinction between that true Israelite And the one who's just putting on airs. And the one who's just performing the acts. And one who's just going through the motion. And he's saying just because everybody didn't accept God, just because everybody didn't see God, that didn't mean that God's word was a failure. That didn't mean the promises of God were failures. It just means that not every Israelite was truly an Israelite after the heart of God. And then he gives us this example of Jacob and Esau. And maybe you remember that story. Esau was the heir. Esau was the legitimate firstborn son of his father, Isaac. But that birthright didn't mean much to him. Maybe you remember the story from Sunday school. And so instead of celebrating the birthright, he decided he was hungry. And so his brother Jacob made him a bowl of soup. And he sold his birthright to his brother Jacob. And Jacob got the blessing. Now, Jacob was also really messed up. That's another sermon for another day. But Jacob did embrace the promises of God, and Esau evidently didn't. And he represents that Jew that Paul's talking about that really didn't understand what God was doing. But Paul says, I want you to understand, regardless if every Jew understood and embraced the teachings of Jesus, regardless of how many did or how many didn't, I want you to know that God's word has never failed, that he is both in charge and he is both in control, including those who will accept him, and those who will not. But we still have to make that decision. We still have to follow through, which is a very mind-blowing concept to wrap our finite minds around, that God is always at work, that God is sovereign, that God knows everything, but that you and I grapple with the truths of Scripture, and you and I grapple with the teachings of Jesus, and you and I make these decisions to follow Jesus Christ, to take our next steps of faith. And then he continues by giving us another example, because what Paul's trying to do is he's trying to help the church understand this difficult concept. 
meaning he's trying to help us as well. So let's pick back up in verse 14. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on him who he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. See, the sovereignty of God's not easy for us to understand, and we can't ever fully understand it because we're human. But the sovereignty of God is one of the most beneficial factors, the most beneficial determinants in our faith journey. It's so impossible for us to fathom, but it's so incredibly beneficial. Did you know this? You see it on the screen. Did you know that the Lord can do whatever He wants whenever He wants to do it? If you're looking for an easier way to describe the sovereignty of God, if somebody were to say, what's the sovereignty of God all about? You can say the Lord can do whatever he wants whenever he wants to do it. And that's what makes him incredible. And so it might re- seem unjust to us because one person comes to faith in God and another doesn't. Many will say it doesn't seem right that she accepted the gospel and he doesn't. See, what doesn't truly seem right to me is that any of us would be offered salvation. It doesn't seem right to me that any of us deserve what it is that the Lord has lavished up on us because he has given us something that we truly do not deserve because we have turned our back on God's time and time and time again. And it's our sin that separates us from God. But God gave us his one and only son, Jesus, so that we could experience that freedom. And whether it's salvation or whether it's just simply you might feel like you're in a place that you never expected you would be right now, or maybe you're in a place in your life that you're not happy about. And you're wondering, where is God in the midst of this? Is it your fault that you're not in life where you wanted to be? Is it God's fault? I'm not sure that fault is the right word to be using. (laughs) Rather, if we looked at all of our situations with what we know to be true, God does not change, does he? God works out everything according to his plan and ultimately, God is good. That was Romans 8. If you weren't here last week, Pastor David delivered a fantastic message about God being good even when he doesn't seem, or whenever our circumstances may not seem good. See, none of that ever changes, and it never will. So how do I respond? I have to hold true to what I know about God, that he's in control, and that I trust him, and that I yearn to understand what Jesus has done for me. I seek to live the truth of the gospel, and I seek to share the message of the gospel with those that I come in contact with. See, God asks us to embrace him, And God asks us to go and tell others about him. But this work is not really about us, is it? In fact, you see there on your notes that the work of God is not contingent on human hands. But he invites our hands into the work. How does that happen? Ding, ding, ding. Sovereignty of God. The work is not contingent on my human hands. But God invites our hands into the work, doesn't he? He's called us ambassadors of Christ. He's given us a mouth to proclaim his Goodness, Romans 9, 16 says, It does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but rather on God's mercy. It doesn't depend on our human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. See, God is always working. When it comes to salvation, God is working in people's lives long before you and I ever step into the picture. God's always drawing people to himself. The Holy Spirit's always softening the hearts of those in your life that don't know Jesus Christ. And so you and I don't save anyone God's the one who does that work, but yet he commissions us to go. 
So, Pastor Jason, why then does everybody not come to faith in Christ? How am I supposed to sleep well at night, knowing that according to verse 14, God has mercy on whom he has mercy and compassion on whom he has compassion? Because if he knows everyone who will accept him and not everyone does, did all of those people have a choice? And all of a sudden, you've got a spaghetti brain again, don't you? Trying to grapple with all of these truths. Well, go back and listen to this illustration about Pharaoh. It's so good. In verses 17 and 18. For Scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. Now, you may recall from the book of Exodus that the people of God, the Israelites, they were sold into slavery and they were in slavery in Egypt under the authoritative rule of Pharaoh. He was an evil ruler. And God had raised up Moses and Aaron and they had went and he went, they went to Pharaoh and they said, let my people go. If you don't let God's people go, terrible things are going to happen to you, Pharaoh and your people. And Pharaoh's heart was very hardened. And he said, I'm not going to let my people go. And so they promised him that then plagues were going to come up on Egypt. And so I want to read these for you. Paul brilliantly uses this example of Pharaoh to help us understand this deep theological divide. Does man have any choice in accepting God? If Pharaoh's heart was hardened by God, did he have a choice or was it just the cards he was dealt? Listen to all these verses, and I'm going to go through these really, really quickly. In Exodus chapter 7, verse 13, and you're going to get a theme here. Exodus chapter 7, verse 13. Yet Pharaoh's heart became hard, and he would not listen to them just as the Lord had said. See, this was in, re- in a return to when they had, retur- they had made the staff turn into a snake, and Pharaoh's heart was hardened. He said, I'm not going to obey what it is that you're asking me to do. Then Exodus Exodus chapter 7, verse 22, the Egyptian magicians did the same thing by their secret arts, and Pharaoh's heart became hard. He would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said. They were able to turn the water into blood, and so he said, my heart's still hardened by that. I'm not going to let your people go. And then Exodus chapter 8, verse 15. But when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart and would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said. This was in regard to the plague of frogs. I'm thinking if frogs are everywhere in my house, I'm going to let God's people go. But Pharaoh's heart was still hardened. He hardened his heart. Let's keep going. Exodus chapter 8, verse 19. The magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hard and he would not listen, just as the Lord had said. That was in regard to the plague of gnats. Again, I'm saying, let my people go. Exodus chapter 8, verse 32. But this time also Pharaoh hardened his heart and would not let the people go. What's that in regard to? That's in regard to the plague of flies. Pharaoh says, my heart is still hardened. And then, and only then, after the plague of boils, rotting, festering boils on your skin. Listen to Exodus chapter 9, verse 12. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said to Moses. What was different about Exodus 9, 12, opposed to the first five, you have One, two, three, four, five instances of Pharaoh saying, I am hardening my heart. I see what God's doing, and I'm hardening my heart. I'm not letting God's people go. Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And then in Exodus chapter 9, verse 12, it says, The Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. But his heart was hardened by the Lord after Pharaoh had hardened it himself five times. 
So which came first, the chicken or the egg? (laughs) Is God to be blamed? How can a loving God harden his heart? See, that happened only after Pharaoh repeatedly rejected God, but it served as a purpose because through that lack of response by Pharaoh, God's power was displayed in all of the earth and he was magnified. Now, how would God and why would God choose to work that way? I don't know. It's the sovereignty of God. But you see it here on your notes. The more I understand the sovereignty of God, the less that I question why things happen the way that they do. The more I understand the sovereignty of God, the less that I question why things happen the way they do. Now, this causes some of us to ask questions. And I've stood on this stage many times and told you before, if you have a question about God or a question for God, you should ask that question to God. Is it bad to have questions? Absolutely not. The problem is when we seek clarity about God from places that are not God. Your bestie can't answer you questions that only God can provide. The Word of God provides us clarity. Google, please don't Google your deep theological questions, okay? It's just a bad rabbit hole. Go to God's Word and ask God for clarity, and maybe we can talk through those things. And if you come to me with some of those questions, I love to hear them, but don't be surprised if my answer is, I don't know. But let's pray for God to bring us some clarity and some understanding. But what the Bible does is the Bible makes it abundantly clear that God yearns for all to come to repentance. And yet not everyone does. But yet through everyone's decision or indecision, God is still glorified. And he is the one that receives the glory. That's what we've been singing about this morning. Let's head back to the text. Pick back up in verse 19. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who is able to resist his will? But who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, Why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? What if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the object of his wrath prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory, even us whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles? See, God works all situations for his good, though the circumstances may not seem good. God works all circumstances for the good, though the circumstances may not seem good. See, every situation in life, Every person in life, regardless of how conscious they are, it's an opportunity that God is working in their life to bring glory to himself. Why? Because he's sovereign. And often that causes us to ask questions. It doesn't make sense to us. And Paul said, sometimes what you do is you talk back to God and you say, God, why is it this way? God, why did you not do this? God, why did you let that happen? But would it be possible this morning that we could get to a place in our mind where we say, even the things that don't make sense to me, I can see as opportunities for God to receive glory. I am one that will unashamedly stand in front of you and say that some of the worst seasons of my life and some of the worst seasons that we have encountered are the seasons where God was most glorified and where God made himself so known in a real palpable way. Part of my understanding of God's sovereignty is to realize he's in the center of it all, meaning I'm not in the center of it all. Because what do I have? I have a very finite understanding. And when I try to get my mind to understand things they're not capable of understanding, I either get frustrated with that or I worship. When you encounter these truths that you don't know how to grapple with, you either get frustrated by that or you're going to worship. God, however, is above it all. And as his image bearer, you are the pinnacle of his creation. In all the created order, you are at the top of the food chain. 
God made you in his image. Did you know that God created this world in such a perfect way that if there were only just some slight changes in the atmosphere, we wouldn't be able to exist right now? Did you guys know that? God created the world in such a way that if there was just minor changes in the atmosphere right now, we would all be toast. So know how big he is and how vast he is. For example, did you know that if the level of the oxygen in the air right now dropped by 6%, the entire world wouldn't be able to breathe? Meaning we would all die. If the oxygen level rose by 4%, the earth would spontaneously combust and create this massive fireball where flames would be shooting everywhere, obviously causing us to... The crowd interaction, what happens if there's massive fireballs coming our way? Die, right. <laughs> you guys are like, can I say death in church? Yeah. <laughs> and then there's carbon dioxide. Remember back from your science class, carbon dioxide? Uh, did you know that if the carbon dioxide levels in our atmosphere were 0.5% higher, the entire world would become an oven, causing you to... If it were 0.02% lower, there would be no atmosphere, meaning no oxygen, meaning you guessed it. Should I keep going? Um, how about Jupiter? Jupiter is the largest planet in our solar system. Did you know that if Jupiter was not the size that it was, it's estimated that 10,000 asteroids would be hitting the Earth at any given time, probably causing us to die. So, Lord, we just want to thank you for Jupiter right now. Add that to your quiet time in the morning. Why do I say all of that? When you realize how big God is and how small you are, and when you realize that even in the vast creation of the cosmos of what he has created, you are still the pinnacle of his creation. Jupiter is not. And that blows your mind, and it helps you realize how small you are in this grand scheme of the universe, but it also helps you to hopefully respond in worship to say, God, you have created me in your image. I'm an image bearer of you, meaning you want to know me, you want to be in a relationship with me, and you want me to go and boldly proclaim that message of the gospel to a hurting world. He created us to know him. He sent Jesus to die for us, and he yearns for us to accept him, to follow him. And he's in charge of all that, and he calls us to him, but you and I have to respond. We have to make that choice to respond to him. How does all of that work together? I look forward someday in heaven to be able to get full clarity on that. But the finite minds right now can't grasp it all. Paul's saying we couldn't grasp it then. You can't grasp it now. But don't miss who Jesus is and what Jesus has done and turn from your sin and walk into a newness of life. Many have already done that. Many will do that. Many won't. Be encouraged, however, that that path is so clear. And I want to conclude today back in Romans chapter 9, reading verses 30 through 32 to scroll down a little bit. What then shall we say, Paul says, that the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith? But the people of Israel who pursued the law as the way of righteousness have not attained their goal. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. Paul started chapter 9 by saying, you know what, there are true Israelites who accepted and those who trusted in themselves more than God. Yet the Gentiles, he says, they pursued Christ by faith. That's the theme of Romans. If you're new today, that's the theme of Romans is righteousness by faith. And he says, for many, the rules and the regulations became a stumbling block. But through faith, your life has been made right. Have you ever been trying to find a destination and you kind of realized you were just looking in the wrong place? 
He's saying that's what happened to the Israelites. This happened to me not too long ago. I had entered in an address on my Google Maps, and I was going to a restaurant, and it led me to like an office complex, and I'm thinking, am I meeting somebody for lunch in an office building? And I went online and realized, like, I had just literally typed in the wrong address. And so the Google Maps served me really, really well. I just put the wrong input in. And I think about our life, you should never be surprised if you don't reach the goal when you're looking in the wrong places. Never be surprised if you don't reach the goal when you're looking in the wrong places. The Jews, Paul said, they pursued God. They just weren't pursuing God by faith. And guess what? They didn't find him. And maybe you're doing the same today. You're searching for Jesus, but you think it's all about a bunch of rules, and you think it's about a bunch of checkboxes. As long as I adhere to a bunch of regulations, I should be fine. But there's nothing that could be further from the truth because it's about a surrendering of your life to the plans and purposes of God, the one who gave all for you. God sent his son Jesus so that we could be made right. So the question this morning is, will you follow him? Will you trust him? Will you trust him in the uncertainty? Will you trust him in the midst of the chaos? Will you trust him in the midst of the seasons when you have more questions than answers? Why? Because he is the potter and you are the clay and he is molding your life exactly the way that he wants it. And you can trust him because he's calling everyone to himself. And we have a decision to make. How do I respond to that? The Lord has a purpose for you. The Lord has a plan for you. And that plan is good. And my hope and prayer is that you reflect upon his goodness and that you will surrender your life to him today. Lean on him today. Draw your strength from him today. Bring all of your concerns to him. Bring all of your questions to him. And the beautiful thing about the sovereignty of God is that he anticipates and knows the desires of your heart, anticipates and knows the things that you're going to struggle with, and he meets you right there in the midst of it. So this morning, let's turn our sights to him and say, God, do what only you can do in my life. Do what only you can do in this place, and please, Lord, receive all of the glory. Thank you for listening to the Rolling Hills Sermon Podcast. Share this episode with friends and family in your life. Make sure you subscribe to be notified so you never miss a sermon. If you are interested in learning more about Rolling Hills, download our Rolling Hills app, follow us on social media, or visit our website at rollinghills.church. The Rolling Hills Sermon Podcast is a part of the Rolling Hills Podcast Network, available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. Thanks for tuning in.